This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. And, and note the sixth edition of Stocks for Long Run is now available. Uh, please note I'm a registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a supervisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a very interesting show. We have an author of a new book out there on chips and semiconductors, one of the big stories for geopolitics. Uh, but before we get to, to him, uh, we're going to be talking. Uh, we get Professor Siegel to kick us off with some commentary. Professor, wild week in the markets. A lot going on. Uh, give us your, your top-down view here. Wow. You're certainly right, uh, Jeremy. Uh, there's so many things uh, to talk about. Um, uh, first of all, I, I'd like to mention something that just came out within, uh, you know, a few hours ago. Uh, the uh, University of Michigan expected inflation rate five to 10 years dropped to 2.7 percent. It was over three just through four months ago. What's interesting is 2.7 percent. That's five to 10 year inflation expectations have now dropped to the level before the COVID crisis, the same as the February, um, um, uh, just slightly above uh, the February uh, level. Uh, so just a couple tenths above the February level of 2020. So, I mean, inflationary expectations are not going to be a problem uh, for the Federal Reserve. Um, what I also thought was significant today, uh, this week, the case shore index, as we uh, indicated last week, did come in negative for the month. More importantly, the Federal Housing Authority Index came in way negative for the month. Um, these, it's very unusual um, in, uh, for uh, both these indices to show negative. And that's for the month of July. They're very lagged. August and September, uh, all reports are they continue downward. So we, there's no question that house prices have declined. There was a headline in the Wall Street Journal that rental prices are not jumping by as much as they did earlier uh, this year. Um, uh, now, Mester came on she uh, on a CNBC interview and uh, being questioned by Steve Leisman made the same comments that parroted the comments of, of uh, uh, Chairman Powell that they don't consider the money supply important uh, after pointing out that the money supply had declined again this week, by the it had unchanged. It was virtually unchanged this week, and it's still negative from the month of, of March. A very rare occurrence. She said we don't consider that important, which I, you know, I find astounding, since that was the cause of the inflation that we have today. Now, PCA deflator came in this morning, a little above expectations. Um, uh, not uh, again. I didn't uh, able to dissect it. How much is housing? We know housing is lagged in in that index, so uh, that might uh, be one of the reasons it it jumped a little bit more. Um, I do also want to talk about the fact that we got uh, some major revisions in the last two years of GDP benchmark revisions, and uh, it showed that indeed GDP fell the first two quarters of this year. There would have been a lot of questions because gross national income, which is another way to measure aggregate output, actually rose the first two quarters. Now, a lot of people had said that uh, the mismeasurement, uh, we did not have a decline. Well, they brought those figures down, and there's now no question of a decline in real output for the first two. And that means that productivity did, in fact, drop by an all-time record amount in the first two quarters of this year. And by the way, today, a front-page article in the Wall Street Journal, which talks about labor hoarding um, and people are not letting 
people go because they're worried about being able to get them back. And uh, therefore, they're keeping so many people on. And that could be one reason why productivity has fallen so much. Now, there's an article um, uh, um, uh, that, that suggested this is just the rebound of the earlier uh, jump in productivity we had at the beginning of the pandemic. But, but that is not the case because even when you include the earlier part of the pandemic, uh, jump uh, productivity uh, has suffered an awful lot. Uh, that labor hoarding, uh, if if demand weakens, could become labor disgorging, if I may coin a term, uh, toward the end of uh, this year and early next year. Uh, and that would certainly, I think, turn the head of a lot of uh, Fed officials. I think, Professor, you need to send Loretta a copy of the sixth edition of the book so she can get your chapter on the money supply, creating the inflation. We'll follow up after the show on that. Um, the You also had a lot of, you know, the, 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 part of the big stories this week was the Bank of England coming out and, and trying to reverse course on their quantitative tightening program. There was talks of the, the LDI, which is liability-driven investment strategies, this leverage bond trade that a lot of these pension funds doing, that they were coming to save the market. Any commentary on what you saw out of the UK? Like, Are they going to ever be able to get out of these bonds? Is it really true to say this was emergency measures and they'll be able to get out of it a few months later? What, what's your thoughts on, on that? I don't know the details, and I have read exactly what you described. Um, uh, so we had a rally on that day because people are so desperate. If they see one central bank reversing course, they say, well, maybe there's a probability the Fed will reverse course in some way. And that, I think, spurred uh, that rally uh, that we had on Wednesday, largely erased on uh, on Thursday. I really do not think, uh, again, I don't know all the details, um, that this could be a serious liquidity problem. We do notice that the pound has bounced back. There has been some normalization uh, over uh, on the rates and the exchange rates over the last uh, couple of days. Um, uh, pound dropping to near record lows. Um, but I, I think that that is mostly going to be confined to the U.K. Um, and is really not going to turn into a financial crisis. I don't see any signs of financial crisis or stress, even with this jump in rates. I just find that the, uh, the depression, the housing industry, borrowing industry, and all the rest can really cause a turn down if the Fed doesn't signal that it will soon stop and at least look at the data uh, to see whether how much further tightening uh, is that. They have made no indication of doing that. Um, certainly, uh, we're going to get October data. The next meeting is the middle of December, so we're going to have two more CPIs and, and, and the labor data. Uh, certainly, this with this PCE, which is definitely what the Fed looks at, um, you know, they're, they're going to continue to be very aggressive. But again, we have six, seven weeks until the meeting. And so I would not, uh, you know, I, I would not say, say for sure that that uh, this this hawkish look uh, at the data that they look at and will continue uh, over the next month and a half. And so you recall, you would like them to do a 50 and then a pause in November to December? Is that... Uh... It's going to be totally... If, if we get weakening of employment... Now, we didn't see it with jobless claims. We were very strong on, on, on Thursday. That is going to be an early indicator. But if we begin to see the weakness uh, coming... Uh, uh, you know, we now have firms saying that it is inventory buildups. We saw the Nike um, and semiconductors, Micron and, and several others. If we begin to see those warnings and begin to see it in the data coming there, my feeling is, is that they will be persuaded to do a 50. It's too early to get the call. There's a lot of data coming out. Uh, we just have to shake them out of their mindset that they have to, you know, see year over year or even three months. Uh, inflation go down to two percent before they're going to stop the tightening. That would be way too late in terms of uh, of uh, trying to uh, steer us to a, a steady two percent inflation rate. Well, Professor, I know you're doing your part to spread the message, so uh, we appreciate the comments on behind the markets here. And again, congrats on the sixth edition. Everybody should find now available bookstores. Uh, Professor Siegel, sixth edition stocks for is out. Uh, thanks for joining us for some comments, Professor. We'll see you. Uh next week. Thank you, Jeremy.
We're going to turn our conversation to Chris Miller, uh, who is also the author of a new book. And this book will be hitting the bookstores next week, I believe. Chris can confirm, but he's an economic historian who talks about the world's most critical resource being microchip technology. We have the U.S. and China. This is one of the key sources of tension on technology. Uh, but the, the book that he has coming out, Ship Wars, The Fight for the, Mo- the World's Most Critical Technology. He's an associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Chris, welcome to Behind the Markets. Thanks so much for having me. And we have another Chris uh, also joining us here, my colleague, Chris Gennady, who's Global Head of Research on our team in London, uh, with Simpson UK Limited there in, in London. Chris, thanks for coming on. Welcome back to Behind the Markets. Always a pleasure to be here. And and Chris is a, a voracious reader. He does uh, as as much on AI semiconductors. He does a lot of work on thematics. And so I'm going to let Chris do a lot of the uh, leading on this conversation. He read the, the the preview of Chris's book very quickly, um, and and so I think he has a lot more uh, sort of informed questions. But I will be here to help. Uh, Chris, where do you want to start with with Mr. Miller? Well, well, Chris, I, I was just uh, curious, you know, in your position as a historian, there are so many topics in the world. Um, this is obviously a big one today, but I'd, I'd love to just, you know, to warm up uh, the audience, just sort of hear what, what led you to this topic and, you know, to initially start writing this book. When I started this research five years ago, semiconductors were far from the headlines in many ways. And the semiconductor shortage that we've been working through for the past two years was uh, still in the future. I, I've done a lot of my academic work, academic work on Russian history, and I actually came to this project from uh, research into missile guidance systems, because one of the questions I wanted to answer was why was it that during the Cold War, the Soviet Union could make nuclear weapons, they could shoot guys into space, they launched the first satellite, but they could never master computer technologies. And this was important because computer technologies were absolutely crucial for guiding missiles accurately. And the drive to miniaturize computing was important because if you wanted to stick a computer in the nose of your missile, it had to be lightweight and energy efficient. And so the U.S. and the Soviet Union both poured lots of money into miniaturization, and only the U.S. did it right. Uh, and I came to realize that uh, this process drove the emergence of what we now know as the computer chip, uh, and that there was a deep interconnection between uh, defense technologies and chips from the earliest days, which persists all the way up to the present. And when you look at U.S. and China uh, today jockeying for control of this technology. They're doing so not only because it's economically and financially crucial, but also because it's going to shape the future of military technology and the balance of power on the world stage. Well, that's it's, it's interesting. interesting that you mentioned that ultimately, because uh, we're, we're in a position where even today we see the difference between uh, the obvious difference between Russian capability on the battlefield when the U.S., even if the U.S. itself is not directly there, the U.S. weapons are there and uh, it's crystal clear uh, they can absolutely do different things. Um, so, so, Chris, uh, one of the places that, you know, and, and the difficulty here is we're navigating a 400 page book within 50 minutes. But what I'd love to do is start us down a path to help people understand what the current semiconductor supply chain looks like. And to do it properly, you kind of have to go back to where the world was, similar to what you were just saying. You come out of World War II, uh, you come out of the Korean War, and you see sort of the genesis of Samsung. You see Akio Morita with uh, Sony in Japan. You see all these different pieces of the puzzle starting to assemble in various ways. I'd love for you to start taking the audience through what were some of the most critical developments coming out of World War II, 1950s, early 1960s, that start us on the path that we find ourselves on today? One of the reasons I titled the book Chip War was because not only do you have semiconductors play a big role in military competition, but also because there's been a relentless struggle between companies to to, to develop and commercialize the best chip technology. And, and you see that from the earliest days of the industry. When the, the first chips were produced in Texas and then in California, they were made for really niche uses in space and defense technologies, but they quickly realized that there was a vast market in 
commercial computers uh, at the time for large corporations, but over time for uh, more uh, uh, consumer uses. And eventually in consumer devices like uh, pocket calculators, which were a key source of chip demand in uh, the 1970s. And as the civilian market grew, uh, so too did the number of firms that participated and the specialization uh, that they had to pursue to, to, to produce the cutting edge technology that they needed. Uh, when you start with the history of the industry in the 1950s and early 60s, what you find is that most semiconductor firms were producing everything uh, they need in-house, their chemicals, their equipment, uh, their designs. And over time, as semiconductors have gotten more advanced and the technology has gotten more complex, uh, there's been a tremendous specialization in the supply chain. And it's been specialization that has resulted in the emergence of new firms, but also in the geographic spread of the industry to new countries. And so today, it's not just the industry based in Texas or Silicon Valley. Of course, it's Taiwan, it's Korea, it's the Netherlands, it's Japan, without which uh, it's impossible to make the most advanced chips that we rely on. We're talking with Chris Miller, who is author of The Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, coming out next week on the bookshelves. Um, and, and, and Chris, you're just talking about this, the, the, the global nature with where the chip's coming from, Taiwan, as, and the background between Taiwan, China, U.S. And, and you're also talking a lot about the Russia conflict at the start in, in terms of how important that is to the, that current dynamic. Can you give us any comments on Taiwan, that over that sort of tri-party relationship, the importance of it to you, and and how you see some of this playing out over over the over the coming years? Most people don't realize it, but without Taiwan, we wouldn't have iPhones. We would only have a small number of PCs. Data centers would be impossible to produce. Taiwan today produces ninety percent of the world's most advanced processor chips. One third of the new computing power produced each year comes from chips made on Taiwan. And Taiwan's most advanced chip maker, TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, has technology that is unparalleled in its sophistication. They're able to produce uh, chips with transistors that are smaller than the size of a coronavirus, a hundredth the size of mitochondria, technology that no one else can replicate. So not only do they have a uh, tremendous amount of chip making capacity, they've also got unique technology, which means that without their uh, chips, the entire global economy would suffer immense losses. It's Apple, it's NVIDIA, it's AMD. All of these companies uh, rely fundamentally, in some cases even exclusively, on TSMC to produce their most important chips. And, and, and Chris, I, I'm curious because Taiwan Semiconductor is one of the most unique stories, I think, out there because... If, if any other firm existed, like we, we still talk about Steve Jobs, we still talk about these iconic individuals, but I would be amazed if anyone in our audience today has heard the name Morris Chang. But because of Morris Chang, you've got Taiwan Semiconductor and we've got all the things that you just said. So I'd, I'd love for you to just spend some time introducing the audience to Morris Chang and, and in brief a bit of the story behind Taiwan Semiconductor and the reason why it's a company that is so important and yet we really don't hear about it anywhere near the same extent that we hear about other companies that aren't anywhere near as important. Yeah, that's right, Chris. And I think Morris Chang is the most influential uh, and successful entrepreneur that no one has ever heard of. Um, he's got a life that tracks the entire course of the history of the semiconductor industry. He was really present at the creation of computer chips and today is the person who more than anyone else can claim to have uh, built the industry that all modern technology relies on. He was born uh, in China during World War II. He fled to Hong Kong after the communists took power. He went to the United States and enrolled at Harvard where he was the only Chinese student at the time in his class. He then did uh, finished his undergraduate degree at MIT and was hired uh, after a couple of years by Texas Instruments, which was one of the sort of hottest startups of the late 1950s, if you will, uh, in the tech space. And Morris Chang uh, had a unique ability uh, to produce semiconductors that were ever more advanced, uh, doing so uh, in a way that economized on 
on cost. And that was fundamentally what made chips so powerful is that every single year they got more advanced, but the cost per computing power declined uh, at an exponential rate for most of the past several decades. And Morris Chang, more than anyone else, can claim to have driven that process. In the 1980s, he was passed over for the CEO job at Texas Instruments in what's got to be one of the greatest errors uh, in the history of the tech sector. And he was looking for new things to do. He was already uh, a, a leading executive. He'd played a, a crucial role since the industry's beginning. And he got an offer from the government of Taiwan, uh, which is an island that he'd only really visited before uh, because Texas Instruments had a couple of facilities there uh, to try to build up that island's tech infrastructure. And at the time, Taiwan was really economically uh, not a major player. They had some small assembly factories, but really low uh, value uh, outsourcing. But they gave Morris Chang a blank check and told him, uh, you can uh, try to build up Taiwan's semiconductor industry. We'll give you whatever you need. And he had a, a revolutionary new business model in mind. Uh, before Morris Chang, almost all chip companies both designed and produced their chips in-house. And he realized that sort of like uh, Gutenberg uh, for the printing press, that there was a need for a mass production of semiconductors that didn't really depend on who the author was. And so he opened up a, a foundry uh, called a TSMC, which would produce chips for anyone who designed them. And this ended up being a really revolutionary business model because it enabled him to serve a wide variety of customers and produce a ton of chips. Uh, and one of the key uh, features of the semiconductor industry is that the more chips you produce, the more you can learn and improve your processes and the more efficient you become. And as a result, TSMC is uh, one of the world's biggest chip producers today. And uh, not coincidentally, it's got some of the most efficient processes and most advanced technology as well. And that's all because of this unique business model that Morris Chang conceived of when he founded TSMC. And, and while this is happening, the, the funny thing about when you, when you go through the path of the book, you're, you're seeing the process that leads to TSMC, you're seeing the process that leads to Huawei, you're seeing what Intel is doing at that time. And what's, what's fascinating is you have some companies that are able to sort of adapt and adjust, and those are the ones we still talk about and still exist. And you have other companies and even countries that go from a heavy leadership position to basically falling flat and almost disappearing into the background. And what I'm thinking about in here, so around the time that TSMC is sort of coming into the game, you've got a few things happening. You've got Japan Inc. and the fact that Japan is like, being thought to own the U.S. in the late 80s, and we know what happened subsequently. Uh, you've got Intel sort of making a very interesting and pretty controversial decision to go in the direction of logic chips. Uh, and these things completely change how the chip industry goes from that point forward. And certain companies that couldn't adjust, we never talk of them again. So, so, Chris, I'd love to hear your take on that key decision by Intel and the reason that Japan just didn't continue to take over the world on the pace that they were in the late 80s. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Chris. And I think there are a ton of lessons here for thinking about business models and how companies adapt or fail to adapt to innovation. If you look at Intel, they were, when they were founded in the late 1960s, uh, one of the leading uh, startups in the semiconductor space, uh, founded by Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore, after whom Moore's Law is named. And they were founded to create memory chips, and they were very successful in the memory chip business uh, throughout the 1970s. But memory chips were ultimately a commodity business. All firms' memory chips were more or less the same. So the question was just, could you produce them more efficiently or bring your model to market a couple months in advance? And ultimately, that was a business where margins were low, competition was tough, and uh, the Japanese, as you mentioned, uh, were able to undercut American producers on cost. And so Intel in the early 1980s faced a real crisis uh, of profitability, but also of corporate culture because they'd been built around memory chips. Uh, one Intel employee said the idea of abandoning memory chips was like the idea of Ford abandoning autos. Uh, but they pivoted under their CEO, Andy Grove, who's one of the great CEOs of the 20th century, uh, to abandon that business, uh, shocking uh, in many ways all the employees and embracing a new technology called the microprocessor, which Intel had invented a couple of years earlier, but was really a small kind of niche uh, type of chip. 
Um, but also in the 1980s, simultaneous to their decision to leave memory chips, uh, Intel had cut a deal with IBM uh, to produce the first uh, device called a personal computer um, alongside a, a software designer named Bill Gates, who wrote his software so that it matched up with the design of uh, Intel's chips. And Intel bet everything. And Andy Grove, uh, the CEO, bet everything on this new microprocessor chip. And Throughout the 1980s, 1990s, into the 2000s, Intel really rode the wave of the PCs and actually made far more money uh, selling chips for PCs than IBM ever made uh, selling PCs themselves. One of the things that Intel discovered, like Bill Gates with the software, is that actually PCs themselves were something of a commodity. Uh, it was the chips inside and the software uh, that they ran, which uh, actually uh, were the most profitable parts of selling PCs. Uh, and that made Intel one of the most successful U.S. companies uh, throughout this period. But uh, it's it's a story of, of rise and fall for Intel because after Andy Grove left the scene, he retired and then uh, later passed away, his successors failed to keep up with, with uh, new trends in the tech industry. They famously missed the smartphone wave. And today, Intel produces hardly any chips that go into smartphones and also were really behind the curve when it comes to the types of semiconductors you need for AI applications. And so right now, Intel is a really a shadow of its former self, uh, struggling to uh, keep up with, with new competitors because the things that made Intel uh, strong in the 1980s, their willingness to abandon dying businesses and embrace new ones uh, is something they'd forgotten after Andy Grove left the scene. And I think you mentioned uh, the case of Japan. And in, in Japan, you see the same dynamic. Japan did really well in the 1970s and 80s, producing memory chips cheaper and uh, at higher quality levels than U.S. firms. But they totally missed the boat when it came to uh, shifts in, in technology. And the personal computer is something that the Japanese were just blindsided by, in part because they were doing so well producing memory chips. And as a result of that, uh, Japan today is a, is a second tier player in terms of chip making. Um, there still is some memory chip production in Japan, uh, very little uh, processor chip production in Japan. And Japanese firms are uh, none of the, the biggest producers of semiconductors today. So there, too, you have a story of uh, companies catching one wave of innovation, but then resting on their laurels, uh, failing to ascertain the trends that are shifting the industry and uh, missing the next wave and, and therefore falling behind. Chris, let me ask you a question before we get, we're going to do a quick break and then we'll come back with Mr. Mr. Miller. Um, Chris, when you see, you, you talk a lot about semiconductors, as you see the demand shifting and the need for them, and he's talking about a lot of these very interesting applications. Chris, when, in, in all your work on the different thematics that you do work on, where do you see semiconductors demand most coming from and the types of chips that you see uh, the most interesting today? So if you look at where the market is today, uh, around a quarter of chips by value go into smartphones, slightly less than that into PCs and data centers, and then the rest into a mix of cars, industrial applications, Internet of Things, consumer devices. Um, that's beginning to change because smartphone and PC markets are, are quite mature. Uh, and the two key drivers going forward, I think, are first high-performance computing, um, growing demand for data center capacity, and in particular, artificial intelligence uh, capabilities within data centers and companies like NVIDIA uh, in particular have um, grown on the back of the early stages of this trend, but we still are in the early stages, I think. And then second, in, in automobiles, autos have always been a consumer of semiconductors for things like managing the fuel injection into an engine or uh, moving the, the power seats back and forward. Uh, but the types of chips going into cars are getting a lot more complex. Um, the best example of this is the uh, primary processor chip in a Tesla is a, a hugely complex chip produced uh, at one of the most um, uh, advanced process nodes. And I think that's uh, giving us a, a sign of where the industry is moving, more semiconductors in cars and more complicated and sophisticated semiconductors in cars. And to add on top of that, when you look at the shift towards electric vehicles, they require a whole different set of uh, somewhat unique semiconductors to manage their power supply. And so when we project into the future, autos are going to be a, a growing use case for semiconductors uh, and a growing use case for complex and advanced semiconductors uh, as well. And so that alongside high-performance computing, I think, are the two growth drivers of the industry going forward. Mr. Mr. Gennady, anything you want to add on top of that? Uh, no, I mean, that was uh, an extremely comprehensive look. Uh, we tend to see 
chips, uh, similar to what Chris was saying at the outset, um, as the essential building blocks that fuel, whether we're talking about biotechnology, uh, mobility, uh, energy, preservation and storage, all of these things depend on semiconductors of various types and also securing them. Uh, cybersecurity is a big topic uh, at Wisdom Tree. And so uh, you really wouldn't have megatrends and in thematic investments uh, if not for chips. This is going to be a, a continued great conversation. We have Chris Miller on with us for the hour. We're talking about his new book, uh, The Chip War. Uh, we're going to talk uh, with Chris Gennady, Global Research at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. You're listening to Behind the Markets. You know, geopolitics is at the heart of everything today. Semiconductors are at the core of that. I know Mr. Gennady wants to get back into Huawei. Chris, I'll turn it back to you to, to get into your, your line of questioning there. So, Chris, ultimately, a couple of years ago, it was very noticeable in the sense that a statement went out from the U.S. government side, and it basically said Huawei, the company, was banned. They didn't say they're banned from using chips necessarily, but they're banned from using chips that at any phase of the production process touch sort of U.S. intellectual property or U.S technology. And if, if we can walk people through what's really going on there, because some interesting things are occurring kind of at the intersection between lithography, sort of how you're etching the designs in the, in the silicon, the uh, electronic design automation companies like your cadences, your synopsis, where you have to ensure that what you're designing is actually going to be feasible and workable. And obviously the human brain cannot design a billion, uh, you know, transistors onto uh, a tiny, tiny chip. And then, of course, what we hear are the companies like the NVIDIAs of the world that are just out there designing chips. So there's a unique way in which this this puzzle fits together. And I believe it's true, but you can confirm that you cannot put the current puzzle together without touching U.S. technology at all. Yeah, that's that's right, Chris. And and one of the reasons I, I called the book Chip War is that there is a, a sort of arms race between the U.S. and China right now to, to try to dominate the next generation of chip making technology. And right now, the U.S. has a real chokehold uh, over making the most advanced chips. China spends more money importing chips every year than it does importing oil. And Chinese leaders uh, realize this is a dangerous vulnerability, uh, both in peacetime and in case of war. And so since 2014, uh, China has been pouring tens of billions of dollars into a, uh, one of the world's largest industrial subsidy programs designed to help build up Chinese firms in the chip industry. But even still, China's most advanced firms can't make chips at an advanced level without U.S. technology. And, and as you alluded to, there are two different categories uh, of technology where U.S. firms play a critical role. One is in the software that design chips called EDA, Electronic Design automation, for there are basically three companies that uh, all US-based, without which you can't design an advanced chip. And then second are the tools that you use to produce chips. Um, and these tools are among the most complicated and expensive machine tools ever made. Um, they are able to etch shapes uh, in silicon that are just a couple of nanometers uh, wide. And just for context, this is you know a fraction of the size of a coronavirus, a hundredth the size of a mitochondria. This is manufacturing at the tiniest level humans have ever done. And they're able to do this uh, billions and billions of uh, times a day. And these machine tools are largely produced in the United States. Uh, the biggest uh, machine tool producers uh, come from, uh, there, there are five main uh, companies that produce these tools, three based in California, one in uh, Japan, and one in the Netherlands. And they all have dominant positions in their market. And the best example of this is the Dutch company ASML, one of Europe's largest companies, although few people have ever heard of it, has a 100% market share in the production of EUV machines, a type of lithography tool without which it's simply impossible to make an advanced semiconductor. So talk about market dominance. Uh, ASML's got it. And they've got it because these tools cost $150 million a piece. Uh, for a single tool. Uh, and they took three decades to develop. So the amount of intellectual property, of unique know-how, of specialized materials that go into these uh, tools is really extraordinary, which is uh, why they've got this monopolistic position. 
and why it's so dangerous to be in China's position. Because unless you can access these tools, and China currently can't, uh, you're in a real chip choke. And the United States has got control over whether or not China or any other country can access them. It was amazing reading your book, reading some other books about the history of ASML. I think ASML is currently Europe's largest technology company by a bit of a margin. They have an incredible position. And yet, at various points along the way, like we were talking about in the case of Intel or like uh, the case of Japan, uh, there were existential risks on the horizon. And I'd be curious for for you to sort of walk our audience through this this idea. It's, It's called extreme ultraviolet lithography. It's basically the way in which you can almost go atom by atom within the silicon wafer and get those structures to be, like you said, smaller than virus particles or individual parts of cells. Now, a lot of companies were in the space. GCA was a big lithography player, Nikon, Canon, everybody was there. ASML wasn't even the leader. And yet something happened and ASML was the only one to take a risk on this very specific process. And in today's world, this is the process. No other process can achieve the result. Take, take us through some of the decisions that were made by some of these companies. Well, Chris, as you say, lithography is the process of shining light in certain patterns to help carve shapes onto silicon wafers to produce the transistors that chips require. And in the earliest days of the chip industry, this light was produced by camera lenses. And there are uh, great stories of some of the earliest founders of chip firms in Silicon Valley going to camera shops and getting 20 millimeter lenses from uh, from uh, movie cameras to use in the lithography machines. But as semiconductors got smaller and smaller uh, in terms of the features that were carved on them, the light waves needed to get uh, smaller and smaller as well. And so today, uh, extreme ultraviolet lithography uses light with a wavelength of 13.5 nanometers. You need a really small wavelength to carve shapes that are really small. And producing uh, extreme ultraviolet light with this wavelength uh, is extraordinarily difficult. In, in the 1990s, uh, there were a couple of firms, as you mentioned, that were in the lithography business, GCA in the United States, uh, Canon and Nikon in Japan, and then ASML, a firm that was spun out of Philips, the Dutch uh, electronics uh, conglomerate. And there was a big debate in the industry as to whether EUV would be possible. Everyone knew it was scientifically possible to create extreme ultraviolet light in a lab, but there were huge questions as to whether it could be ever done in a way that was cost-effective and reliable enough to do in advanced manufacturing every day, uh, ideally every minute of the day in a semiconductor manufacturing facility. And ASML bet the house on EUV, and no other company did. Most other lithography firms either went bankrupt or decided it was simply too difficult, too expensive, too implausible to invest in. And so ASML was the only player that tried. Uh, It took them several decades. They almost went bankrupt in the process. Uh, But in the end, their technology was so important, without which uh, semiconductor advances would have ground to a halt. Uh, that they ended up dominating the market. And so today, uh, they are the uh, sole lithography supplier when it comes to EUV, this advanced lithography for all of the world's major chip firms. Uh, And you can't produce advanced uh, memory chips or advanced uh, logic chips without their machines. I've I've read that to get one of these machines, I think it takes four 747s. They're $200 million. There's the wait list. Just even being able to use them properly requires a a huge amount of embedded knowledge. And it's similar to what you said in the sense that Taiwan Semiconductor benefits because they make so many chips. They're able to run the machines all the time. They've been using the machines longer than anyone else. It's almost like that process alone creates that uh, almost indefensible moat. And the the thing you're sort of left wondering, and I, I don't know if you've in in the process of your research, thought at all about this, because essentially you've had these cycles already through the industry. Like you said, camera lenses, different process, different process, extreme ultraviolet lithography. People are thinking, is it even possible? What's going to what's going to be next? Because the world wants to keep Moore's law. We mentioned it earlier. 
It wants to keep Moore's Law going. Maybe we get to four nanometers, three nanometers, two nanometers. But at a certain point, you're, you're going to run out of nanometers, at least done this way. So what what should we be thinking in terms of that next leap of capability, if you have any ideas there? Well, you're right that we're already near the point of magic in terms of the engineering that's required. And these EUV machines, you know, the way they work, just to, to give a quick explanation, is they shoot tiny balls of tin at a speed of several hundred miles per hour, uh, just 30 millionths of a meter wide, and then pulverize them uh, to a temperature of 400,000 degrees Fahrenheit. They do so uh, uh, millions of times a minute. And then this creates a plasma inside of the machines at this extreme temperature that emits ultraviolet light. So the, the science behind this is just wild. And the fact that you can do this uh, in a large scale inside of a manufacturing facility uh, is, is even more impressive. Um, to do so, you need some of the flattest mirrors humans have ever created, the power, most powerful lasers used in advanced manufacturing. Uh, the list of uh, engineering uh, feats goes on and on, which is why, as you say, it's so difficult to uh, imagine this continuing indefinitely. And there's, it's clear there will be at least one more generation of more advanced lithography systems, which ASML is planning to bring online towards the middle of this decade. But after that, uh, it's unclear whether we can, in fact, shrink uh, lithography systems even more. Um, and at that point, there is some risk that Moore's law, as it's traditionally defined, i.e. making ever smaller transistors and therefore fitting more of them on each uh, silicon chip, uh, might slow down or even grind to a halt. And we're already at the point where physical limits uh, are uh, are beginning to bind. Quantum effects, for example, are making transistors work less effectively uh, because we're talking now about individual atoms in many cases um, causing uh, problems or creating disruptions in how transistors operate. So at some point, yes, Moore's law is going to break down, but we're not there yet. And if you look at the uh, product pipeline of companies like ASML, they've got at least one more generation of really magical tools uh, planned uh, and already under development. You can go to their facilities today and see the early prototypes of, of these new tools. So they're coming soon uh, and they'll provide uh, a new generation of advances in shipmaking. I want to do a quick reintroduction. You're listening to Behind the Markets on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. We have Chris Gennady, Wisdom Trees Global of Research, out of Europe. We've been talking with Chris Miller, author of Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. And, and Chris, you, we've been focusing on the technology element. I want to come back to the Chip War combined part of the narrative just for a moment. Um, because you know it, it's it's clearly and 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 back to Chris Miller's original other research on Putin uh, and Russia and sort of all the geopolitics. Chris, I, give us your crystal ball and speculation. Everybody you know has been concerned. Like, will China now with everything? Nobody thought Putin would actually go into to Russia. Maybe you thought he would go into Russia, but generally a lot of people were saying, "Oh, he's he's not going to go. He's not going to go into Ukraine." Um, is China? And, and, and when and seeing what how the world responded to Putin going into Ukraine and all the sanctions, given this chip dynamic and how important it is, it doesn't feel like China's in the position to be cut off from all these chips globally. Um, is, is that going to think, yes, Taiwan is a big producer, um, but they also don't want to go destroy all that capacity. What, what, what do you think is how give us your speculation, how all this geopolitics plays out over the coming years? Well, I'd say a couple things uh, in response to that question, all of which tie into this this accelerating competition between the U.S. and China. First is that the military balance in the Taiwan Straits has shifted dramatically in China's direction, such that it's far from clear the U.S. would be willing or able to intervene successfully if, in fact, China attacks. Second, I think that for a long time, uh, many people just believed that China's leadership was focused above all on GDP growth and therefore wouldn't be willing to risk an attack on Taiwan. But I'm not so sure that still holds. You know, on the one hand, we've seen just this year uh, Germany betting that energy independence, interdependence with uh, Russia would provide peace. And now that's been proven false and Germany's paying the price for that. And I think there's some risk that the similar uh, assumption made via China uh, might not be nearly as strong as, as we'd like to think. And third, I think China is beginning to realize uh, as well that they are in a, uh, a, a really dangerous position technologically. 
and there's a lot of talk about China's advances in AI and all the data that China collects. But the reality is that uh, if you want to make advances in computing, you need not only data, not only algorithms, but also computing power. And the U.S. has been taking step after step to restrict China's access to the most advanced semiconductors. And that's why the chip war is so important, because China can't advance in terms of technology unless it's got access to the chips that make these advances possible. Um, and that's why I think there's real risk that China does act over Taiwan. And if they do, even if it's not a D-Day style invasion, but just a small blockade, the, the effects would be enormous. And if you think of the semiconductor shortage of the past couple of years, in 2020, semiconductor production globally increased by 8%. And yet there was still a shortage because demand was higher. In 2021, semiconductor production globally increased by double digits, but demand was higher and there was still a shortage. Taiwan produces one third of computing power every single year. Imagine the disruptions if that were knocked offline to auto production, to aviation, to manufacturing, to consumer goods, to say nothing of smartphones, of which it'd be almost impossible to build a smartphone uh, the year after uh, a, an emergency in Taiwan of that nature. So I think we've really only begun to start thinking through how disruptive it would be uh, in economic terms and financial terms and technological terms if China attacks. And I have to admit, I think the likelihood that China does try something in Taiwan is growing every year. And you only have to look at the Chinese response to Nancy Pelosi's visit to realize that, A, the Chinese take Taiwan very seriously, and B, their growing military power makes it more plausible than ever that they'd be willing to try something. And your point on, like, they're not that important on GDP growth, COVID zero shutting down the entire economy is like another prime example of that. They are willing to shut down their entire economy. Uh, Chris, where do you want to go in the final six, seven minutes here? Mr. Gennady. I, I think one, one of the things we should walk through uh, as we get uh, closer to the close is what we're seeing companies do now, because in many different facets of the technological world, it's clear that the COVID-19 pandemic changed how companies and countries think of certain things. One thing is uh, batteries. They want to ensure wherever they are, they're going to have access to certain metals and battery uh, development facilities. Another thing is clearly chips. And we've seen the announcements, we've seen the CHIPS Act, we've seen the, the government incentives. It's crystal clear that the world doesn't want all of the factories just sitting, you know, 90 miles or so off of China's shore on that one island. And so, Chris, as you see the actions that governments and companies are taking today, do you think five years from now we're in a world where even if it's the same companies with just different factory locations, you think the same concentration risk will continue to exist in Taiwan, or this is something where the clock is ticking and three to five years down the road, Taiwan is just going to be one small part of a much uh, more robust global supply chain? Yeah, I think that's a key question, Chris. And it's clear that many governments, not just the US, which has passed the CHIPS Act, but also Europe, Japan, Singapore, and others are putting more money towards trying to diversify the footprint of where we're building the most advanced chips. And Taiwan's TSMC has uh, announced new facilities in Arizona, in Japan, and potentially also one in Singapore, which would be its first major investments outside of Taiwan or China uh, in some time. So I think there is some diversification coming. And if you look at the results of the CHIPS Act in the US thus far, we've seen announcements by Samsung. They're planning to build a new facility in Texas. Intel is uh, continuing its uh, its investment in the United States. So there is advanced shipmaking uh, happening in the US and, and to some extent happening in Japan and elsewhere as well. But if you look at where TSMC is investing most of its dollars, it's still in Taiwan. And the Taiwanese government, for I think understandable reasons, doesn't want to see uh, Taiwan's importance in the chip industry diminish. And similarly, Korea, which we haven't talked about, but which produces almost half of all memory chips, uh, is equally focused in making sure that it doesn't lose its significant in the memory chip uh, market. So I don't think we've got a pathway right now to reduce our dependence on chip making in East Asia in a dramatic way, which is why as Chinese military power grows over the coming decade, which almost everyone expects it will, this issue is going to become even more dangerous rather than less so. And, and I think we're going to be talking about the chip war, both in terms of its economic 
and its military ramifications more in a decade's time than we are today. And, and Chris, uh, my, my final question here with only uh, a few minutes remaining, uh, what do you think China's plan is going to be, not necessarily geopolitically, but more in the chip space? Something I've read indicates they may focus production on the non-cutting edge area and may dominate that uh, space, the type of chips that go in cars and other things but aren't uh, doing AI. I think that's right. We've already seen a ton of uh, expansion of Chinese firms precisely in that space. And it's it's a, a sensible space for them to go into from the perspective of technological capabilities because they've got the capabilities and they can buy the tools they need to produce those chips. The problem that that poses is that there's a real risk of global overcapacity in those types of chips because China's spending money without any consideration of final demand and any consideration of uh, commercial viability. And so I think that we should be prepared for a glut of overcapacity in precisely those segments of the market uh, where China's pouring money into. And it's both that type of lagging edge logic. Also, uh, NAND memory chips is another place where China's pouring money in. And you know, don't forget, China's industrial policy program towards semiconductors is one of the biggest industrial subsidy uh, 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 programs in, in recorded history. The numbers are mind-bogglingly large, and this is going to reshape the industry even if China doesn't uh, reach the cutting edge. And so I think we should expect a, a new round of uh, trade disputes as well between China and its trading partners, because this is going to put some pressure on the profitability of non-Chinese firms that are currently operating in these segments of the market. Chris uh, Gennady, maybe as you as you think about this space, I know you thought about a lot, uh, I guess we're on our, our final, uh, final closing thoughts. I mean, this has been uh, a great conversation with with Chris Miller, who's the author of this Chip War. Uh, Chris, any places people can find your work? Things you want to give give uh, a link to to what where to find more about your your work? Well, I'd encourage anyone to check out the book, which will be out uh, next Tuesday. It's Chip War, and uh, also my uh, website is ChristopherMiller.net. And uh, I think he's on tw- on Twitter at CRMiller1. Not sure how active you are there, Chris, but uh, I've got that note that leak in my notes. Chris Gennady, thank you for joining us, talking about thematics. I know semis is a big part of a lot of these strategies. Thanks to our producer, Dion, uh, on the soundboard today, Patty Hall. Also, uh, you can check out Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.